But it would not be ballet in America without jazz and jazz dance and improvisation, which are all rooted in African aesthetics. Mm -hmm. So much of our um, cultural production is centered on black bodies, mm -hmm. and it's built around and on and by right. black yeah. bodies. So you cannot look at any form of dance in America and not take it right back to the black body. Each summer, we invite an artist to come in and teach our ensemble a piece that was derived from community engagement and dialogue, as well as input from the youth. And this year's choreographers are Tanya Weidman Davis and Thaddeus Davis. And during their visit this summer, we caught up with them to discuss how they use two minds to create one masterpiece. So I'm originally from Chicago, Oak Park, Illinois, which is a suburb outside of Chicago. And I started dancing when I was three. And so I studied in Chicago. And then when I graduated high school, I moved to New York to work with the Dance Theater of Harlem. And I danced in that company for years. Um, then I danced with uh, Alonzo King's Lines Ballet, Complexions Contemporary Ballet, the Joffrey Ballet, Cleveland San Jose Ballet. And had a plethora of different experiences with many different choreographers. And while we were dancing at Dance Theater of Harlem, Thaddeus and I met, and we decided to open our own company after leaving Dance Theater of Harlem and dancing with other choreographers' companies mm -hmm. and really kind of defining what our aesthetic was after dancing with so many people around the United States. Um, through the process of dancing with many different ballet companies, gotcha. I transitioned to contemporary ballet. Gotcha. Okay. So it was a interesting experience in terms of doing ballet choreography, but ballet choreography with the expansiveness of contemporary ballet, mm. with choreographers really trying to figure out what ballet was in the contemporary time in which they were choreographing. Mm -hmm. So it kind of defined really the ways we wanted to look at ballet and center it on contemporary aesthetics of our time. And what about you then? Yeah, I'm from originally from Montgomery, Alabama. I started dancing when I was 14 or 15, but I grew up in a family that my mother had three sisters uh, and two brothers, so I grew up in that house. My mother was 18 when I was born, and they sang. They sang in the choir, mm. but it wasn't until seeing Lynn Swan on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood that I considered dance but dance was only to help me with football because I was a football player I was gonna say yeah like and so football player. yeah Lynn Swans came into the studio and was like I do ballet to help me with my football and my agility and so I was like in ninth grade I think and so after that I was like mom I gotta go take ballet I gotta go take ballet but it was never to dance though I grew up in a dancing family I grew up, I mean, we danced in the house we danced you know we danced you just dance in the black community it wasn't like dancing was this stigma thing until I got into this ballet thing and I started to experiencing it as I moved on out of high school. How do people respond when they hear that usually? They go wow but then they think yeah. back to the period so this is like 80 I graduated high school in 86 so Lynn Swan, Herschel Walker there was this national thing going on with athletes taking college athletes taking ballet classes in oh. dance programs so it wasn't abnormal your inspiration primarily, because you said you grew up in the dance, you just started dancing, but mm -hmm. what, what inspired you to actually initially get into it, Tanya? Um, well, my mom put me in it when I was three. I first there. started mm -hmm. ice skating, and ah. I kept getting a cold. 
So she decided to put take me off the ice and put me in the studio. Gotcha. And the first time I had a performance, I was hooked. And I knew that I wanted to do it for a profession. And then once we went to graduate school, it mm-hmm. just completely shifted mm. our perceptions of dance and how we could think about it and how also blackness was situated in the art making of dance. Mm. It really was a, um, we went to Hollins University and it was an education that really landed black folks in the art making process. Mm. And when you say landed, what do you mean by that? Is that because there are like people who are teaching that were Well, the perception, yeah, the Mm -hmm. perception in America is that all concert dance and funded dance is situated in whiteness. Yeah, Eurocentric dance styles too. Exactly, Uh exactly. But all those Eurocentric dance forms that we are familiar with in the United States are very much centered in Africanist aesthetics. Mm, That's a good point. Would you say that when you guys came together to kind of find the kind of storytelling contemporary rooted in ballet form that you use, um, that was a brand that you guys kind of came up with, the Whiteman Davis brand? What would you say your brand is? Is it yeah, rooted I, in that blackness? I think that for me personally, it was just being who I was or who I am. And that I grew up in Alabama. I left Alabama after high school made strong commitments to get rid of my southern accent mm-hmm. so that I could sound like I was from any place in America and not so southern like everybody else in my family. Or we slur our words like that because I'm from Alabama. Mm-hmm. So I worked to get rid of that and moved to New York and became international, <laughs> traveling around the world with Dance State of Harlem. And then to go back and to remember and relearn and re-fall in love with who I am and where I'm from is a big part of what Wyman Davis dance is for me personally because there's so much that I, in essence, put on hold, not put on hold, but just said, I need to learn this other thing that's called ballet. And me thinking that it's all rooted in Europeanness aesthetic and to learn later that, oh, that's not what it is at all. Um, or that that is a version, but as it comes to America, it also co-ops black aesthetics. And it, it takes those black aesthetics and merges it with those Europeanist things and puts it on white bodies and say, now this is ballet in America. Uh, but it would not be ballet in America without jazz and jazz dance and improvisation, which are all rooted in Africanist aesthetics. So that's what Whiteman Davis stands for us, is like not making us say, well, we're going to go and do a kind of blackness. We just do what we do. And we're from places that are black spaces and black people. Part of who you are. It's part of who we are. And so much of our cultural production is centered on black bodies. Mm -hmm. And it's built around and on and by black bodies. So you cannot look at any form of dance in America and not take it right back to the black body. Wow. So the the style of choreography that you guys use. So it's a two-part question. You guys were talking about coming together and kind of merging your forms to find what it is. Can you take us through that process of what it was that you guys did to develop your style? And then what is the process of you guys choreographing a piece? So you said you you studied with Donald Byrd. How did that how did that shape you guys' ability to do that and how is it working with two individual minds and putting together one piece. So first of all, we had to dismantle some things. Okay. <laughs> we had to dismantle that the male identity is the thinker yeah. and the doer and really center it on we both are thinking people mm-hmm. and that we both come to the studio with different perspectives and that we both can actually be in the studio and have knowledge production through the body. 
which is completely a whole different frame of work for dance in America. Mm. Yeah, I, I think that it's a negotiation. It's a constant negotiation. It's never perfect. It's never, um, it's work. It's constant work that I see something, Tanya sees something, and then we have to figure out how what we see can work together. It's not just, oh, I see this, let me go with my idea, and unless we're going to do this. And that happens. Not to say that that's where mm-hmm. the work comes in, this kind of negotiation of how are we going to figure out how to get this idea out and not make the idea be about my ownership or your ownership, but about focusing and servicing collectively the idea. Mm-hmm. My work with Donald was about sitting in the process and being in the process and making from the inside. There were a lot of tasks based ideas. We had a structure that we work with. You learn a phrase of movement. From that one phrase of movement, you deconstruct it to maybe make eight different phrases of movement. Hmm. But it's only from maybe four counts of movement. And through that deconstructing as a dancer, you're doing the, the work, so you're learning how to do this process. The right side of the body move, the left side of the body move, put the phrase on the floor, retrograde, which means to do it in reverse, uh, hands for legs, legs for hands, all those different sort of modalities that are basic choreo 101 kind of things that you could learn in a, in a college choreography class. Well, we did that kind of work in the process every time there was a dance. It was never this idea of, I've just got an inspiration, and I'm gonna tell you all the steps, one through a thousand. It was taking four fra- a four count phrase and deconstructing and figuring out how many different ways. And the way Donald worked it, he had the kind of mind that he could go really tight with circles and it looked like the pen wouldn't be moving, but the circles would be so finite, so small, that you wouldn't be able to observe him, but he's down there making little circles. So Mm. it kept the dancing, me as a dancer, intrigued by the process. Mm. And so process is what most of our work is about. Like you broke it down to a micro level. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. And I worked with Alonzo King before I worked with Donald Byrd. Mm. So Alonzo King's choreographic process is you just put out phrases Mm. until you actually have a piece. Donald Byrd goes and deconstructs one phrase or two phrases to the micro level. And so I had these two ways in my head about thinking about choreography that I merged, which was very different than Thaddeus because Thaddeus worked for a long time with Donald Byrd. I worked with Alonzo for two years and then went and worked with Donald. And so I have this different way of deconstructing or thinking about choreography differently than maybe he does at any given time. Is the goal of all of your choreography, all of your pieces to tell a story or is there also some alternative kind of motive behind what you make? Yeah, it's not always about to tell a linear story. I think through the act of choreography and working with bodies, we come up with topics and ideas. And those ideas are in the framework of what we choreograph. But, you know, once you put narrative to a work, it takes on a sort of linear aspect. So there is elements of abstraction, but there also is elements of topic garnered work or yeah, content. I think that like the idea of narrative is kind of loose mm. for us in that if we situate, we create situations and vignettes, so to speak, we situate and make things that 
are, are contained or framed by certain ideas, then it's not about making a piece about this. I'm going to make a piece about an apple. No, I'm going to show you colors of brightness, reds and greens and yellow, and I'm going to allow you to think about sweet and white on the inside and sour and those kinds of thoughts through this movement idea that apple can be relayed. As opposed to the apple is a seed. You put it in the ground and you put water on it. It grows into a tree. And then out of the tree, there comes fruit. Like that's a very literal kind of me banging the idea over your head. Where as a choreographer, I'm not, I think people are smarter than that. (laughs) Um, And I don't want to get, allow the audience or a viewer to get ahead of the work or the way I'm thinking about or we're trying to think about what we're doing. And that's a, tricky space because oftentimes people people enjoy the story mm-hmm. and they want to know exactly what they're going to see how it's supposed to end how why is sleeping beauty swan lake those sort of classic dances they're still being sold because people know how it begins and how it ends the titanic we all knew that the ship was going to end sink at the end but we needed to go see it right and we need to see the process mm-hmm. well we're sort of thinking of well maybe there's another way of conveying those ideas that are not specifically about you knowing a kind of linear it's a non-linear kind of a sec- non-sequitur kind of idea of developing. But I think in those traditional ballets and traditional narratives, people think that they actually know what they're looking at, mm. but in the context of what's actually been choreographed or written, there's a whole other narrative behind it that the audience maybe never even knew. So the idea of looking at a piece of work or a piece of choreography and having the ability to have different narratives at any given time you view the work is okay. That it doesn't have to be one certain reading of a work all the time. That there's options. One of the things that I've, I've observed in particularly this last week of being here in Detroit is the aggressive driving. It's like a sport. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just need to get in front of you just to get in front of you. I don't necessarily have to be where I have to get faster, but I got to get in front of you. Or just drive really close yeah. to the back of your car mm-hmm. and then go around. So in a dance form, that has to do with physicality. <laughs> yes. Like this idea of aggressive driving can be sort of explored through constant physicality, that the energy of a dance would never let down. Mm. It's constantly driving. So I don't have to make it about people bumping into each other or running towards, but it's just about this kind of physical energy. Or so that, angst. That, right. Yeah, so that sure, creates yeah. a sense of like Anxiety a narrative most, yeah. without saying that we're making a piece about that narrative. Wow. So how do all these tools that you guys just kind of described work into the black body project that you're presently creating for us in the studio with the youth? How did all the the description of your choreographic process go into this project? Well, I feel like the angst is in what yeah. we've choreographed thus yeah. far. Yeah. I mean, we have a lot of walking sections mm-hmm. where it's like community coming together, community dissipating, community having mm-hmm. an experience together, and then someone coming out of that community to go and do something mm-hmm. else. Mm-hmm. So there's this angst that has already started to creep into the choreography based on us, you know, residing in Detroit this last week and the times that we've spent here before. Mm-hmm. And also we've been having conversations with people in the community. Yeah. We yeah. have been um, eating at this restaurant, Folk, which I absolutely love. Every time we come to Detroit, we okay. go to this restaurant. This waitress that 
was waiting on us. And she was talking about, you know, going to other cities to live and then coming back to Detroit and thinking about how to situate that space between the older community and the younger community and how Detroit has changed drastically. And mm. there's this gap. Mm-hmm. And then to sit to sit at that restaurant on the same day, which was just last week, and a black woman stops, pulls her car over, gets out, just put the emergency blinkers on, gets out, and comes up to us and says, what kind of food they got in this restaurant? So we go, well, they have this and that and this and that. She goes in. She, no, no, she says to us, I just hate what they're doing in Corktown. Mm. All these bars and drunks and, 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 and walking around here. What if we would go do that in their neighborhood? And so then she goes and she comes back. She says, I'm looking for a place that can sell me some meatloaf. Mashed potatoes and meatloaf. Mashed potatoes, you know, something like that. All I'm getting here is... um, No, she said, I can't get full off this. Yeah, and she says that it was like, uh, what's called avocado toast. Mm -hmm. I can't get full off this kind of stuff. And yogurt cheese. And yogurt cheese. (laughs) I can't get full off this kind of stuff. But there's a disconnect. Right. So here Mm -hmm. there's a young African-American woman who works at the restaurant and who's waiting on us Mm -hmm. and is talking about the gap. And Mm -hmm. then the gap comes right up. It appears. And then as we're sitting there, this man stops at the light and he he stops and he looks like... Well, what's as if to say, what's going on like, what there? What is all this? Yeah. And so there's all this change and this kind of disconnect mm-hmm. between what's currently the people that currently live in the community and this new mm-hmm. sort of move. And she talked about like the black community getting on the farm to table yeah. experience and that the older generation, they don't want to have anything to do with gardening or it, it's stigmatized. So I think once we start dealing with narrative, some mm-hmm. of that information will come into play. Right. Just off of the five minutes that we've choreographed thus far, mm-hmm. you do see this kind of interaction of coming together, separation, coming together and separating in many different forms. And I think that that interact, that kind of driving around, because we Saturday we drove for like four hours, mm-hmm. yeah. just like through different parts of the city, through communities, and also like taking a picture and then someone screaming at me, why are you taking pictures over here? What are mm-hmm. you doing? And it's like, whoa, okay, so you're alarmed at the fact that I'm taking a picture because you've seen where these pictures, and people are how they materialized mm-hmm. and how they've taken by, because you're taking, this, taking my image for what? Um, and so these experiences are helped us last week to shape some questions as we started to talk to the, the, the dancers. Like, mm. Where are you from? What community do you live in? Mm. What were some of the other questions? Uh, What do you think about where you live? Hmm. Does where you live define who you are? How and why? Do you see change in your community? If so, what are they? Is the city changing and how? And has the youth already responded to these yet? Or yes. Yes. Ah, What were some of their responses? Oh, my gosh. It's quite interesting because there's, again, the disconnect. Mm-hmm. They love downtown. Uh-huh. They go to school downtown. Yeah. The 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 little what's the little trolley thing called? The Q little, line. They love that. Mm. They said there's something to do down there all the time. <laughs> oh, we love down. That's our favorite place. Yeah. And so there's like a different last we had a a community gathering last October when we visited. And this was a a group of people, elderly people, different ages but mostly older people, maybe my age, 50 and, and above. And their perspectives were different. Because they're dealing with it from a kind of 
the city is losing. I'm financially losing. But one of the things that the students, that the dancers did say that downtown is not the whole Detroit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, so they could recognize they that. They recognize mm-hmm. that. That it's not moving. And that downtown is policed, mm-hmm. but their neighborhoods mm-hmm. don't have that yeah. police presence. Yeah, there is presence. a difference. Yeah. So how do you, uh, it doesn't seem like this concept that you guys are trying to, to include in this piece um, and I guess in the more broad sense, when you're choreographing a piece that has like very con- complex concepts, when it's talking about generational gaps and gentrification, how do you get the youth to understand kind of the, the mission and the point of the piece and grasp that? I think they already understand right. it. Right. It seems like it from yeah. what you guys just said. Yeah. yeah. I mean, crazy. just by the questions that we've asked. And, mm-hmm. and one girl said, um, she talked about there's a vacant um, home that's in her neighborhood and somebody comes to cut the grass mm. all the time to make it look like somebody has lived in this or is living in the home. And someone else talked about um, people moving out of their neighborhood and, as she called it, the cousins moving mm. in. Right, right. And so we were like, what are these like your relatives? And she was like, no, you know, cousins. <laughs> Black folks. Right, so right, we never right, heard that. Right, right. Oh, really? Right. No, no, we never heard that. Before. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, I never heard that before. Uh, and then the neighborhood changed because the cousins move in. Right. My, co- my cousins mm. move in, as she said. And I never, we never, we were like, oh, you mean your literal, your family? No, no, no. I don't mean my cousins. I mean, like, like black folks move in. Yeah. Like, oh, okay. Uh, so it's just, and then we talk about, Tanya and I talk about the difference in this generation's growing up with constant change. Mm-hmm. So for them, change is normal. Right. And so for the lady who stopped her car and got out and said, I don't like this change going on. Not only is this the bars, but, you know, um, yogurt cheese and, and, you know, avocado toast. I need some meatloaf and some potatoes. Mm-hmm. But so, also that we were the conduit because we were sitting outside yeah, to yeah. all of these people coming into the restaurant having a curiosity about it because what's out there usually is young white people right was that something new to realize oh there's this generational gap the youth here are i think that generational gap is everywhere i think it's situated differently here in detroit just simply because of what has happened in this city geographically Mm -hmm. for such a long period of time there seemed like there just was not adequate resources for people and still that same situation is occurring. Mm. So there's a very different narrative, I think, than the generational gap between Chicagoans and Detroitans. You know, we, we used to tour when we were touring with Dancy to Harlem and the other companies that we work with. We tour, I, I started touring to Detroit in 94 when I first got with Dancy to Harlem. One of the first tours I came on with the company was to Detroit. And probably for the next almost 10 years would come to Detroit at least every other year, sometimes twice a year. And and matter of fact, I toured here before the baseball stadium was across from the music hall. Mm. And then within that time, it was moved. And then progressively other stadiums got fought. So I've observed it in a certain capacity, but Mm. not... We haven't been here since the early, maybe 2011, 2012, or somewhere like that. It's been a while. Mm-hmm. That, no matter of fact, even... It was before that. Yeah, before it was that. early 2000s. Yeah, early 2000s. Mm-hmm. So to come back and, and sort of witness young people who, interestingly enough, were not born until 2002. They were, yeah. They were, yeah, they were the early 2000s. And so this is all they've known. Right. You know, so it's like in their conscious minds mm-hmm. five years ago, they saw change. They saw this 
this new kind of downtown thing. So it's a part of their existence. And also, they're having conversations about gentrification in grade school. They are? Yeah. Wow. Differently yeah. than how we grew up. Okay. Yeah. So what do you guys want them to take away from this piece then? So there's no longer a, this is happening, it's, they already know. Well, I think one thing I would hope that they could take away is that... Um, change can be liberating mm. and that the black body doesn't have to be outside of change. Mm. It can be a part of it. And we can also be a catalyst to change. Yeah, it's a that's a difficult question. It's a difficult question because the black body is losing mm. in some as it relates to our ancestors, as it relates to our elders. You know, to, to drive through Detroit just to see like vast, just open fields and to think that those places and spaces, there used to be people there, and there used to be black people there, and now that that doesn't exist. But that's just in the context of Detroit, right? So what is the kind of thesis of black body outside of the city of Detroit? What is the broader kind mm. of black community than mission of the black body project? What is the, the goal? What are we trying to say? I think, like, how do young people begin to think of themselves as a part of the global experience mm. as well as being right here in the local mm. that you know there's this there's this uh, filmmaker that I you know I watch a lot of his conversation Arthur Jaffa and he talks about like if you see a black statue holding their fist up it's always a black statue holding their fist up if you see a white statue holding their fist up it's man's aspirations to connect to the greater mm. world. Well, how can the black body be symbolic of universality as well as individuality? And not just the black experience, but it too can stand for universality. And that's what I'm hoping that this project and any projects that we do can sort of start to say that the black experience is the universal experience. It's not just the suffrage that we experience, but that that perseverance is perseverance in any nationality. And it is an example of the humanity that's inside of each individual. And our existence is not defined by victimization. Given that you guys have already talked about your process and how you develop things, for a 14-year-old, 15-year-old youth, if you could go back to that time, what is something that's really important for them so that they can kind of blossom in their creative, in their artistic voice? I think that it's okay to be different, and it's okay to challenge, and it's okay to question. Yeah, I think that the more curious that you are, the more possibilities there are, and that difference thing will rear its head much quicker when you are curious because your curiosity will separate you oftentimes from the people that are just hanging out. Like it'll just sort of instantly, you start asking questions and they'll say, why are you asking so many questions? Mm. Why do you want to know all that? And that's what allows you, because I believe that everyone's an artist. I think that the, from the moment we get up, even if we only have two T-shirts, we decide to wear one or the other. And there's a reason why we make that choice. And so that's an aesthetic choice. And that aesthetic choice is a process that we all should embrace more so than saying, you should only study the sciences, the maths, those engineering. And that's all great. That's all great. But at every point, there's an artistic, there's a critical thinking idea that's going on. And critical thinking happens as a result of analyzing and going, I want to make the best choice for this situation. So I think curiosity is what 
me going, me, me taking ballet at 15 was about Lynn Swan doing it, so I was curious about it. Mm. And, you know, that's how it happens. This episode concludes our first season of the Culture Cypher podcast. In one month, we will return with season two. Thank you all so much for listening and being loyal to this podcast. Hang tight, and we'll see you soon. This activity is supported in part by the McGregor Fund, the Community Foundation for Southeast Michigan, the Michigan Council for Arts and Cultural Affairs, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Additional support is provided by the Kresge Foundation and the Fred and Barbara Erb Family Foundation. To learn more about Heritage Works and the work we do in the community, visit heritageworks.org.